it's time for the Tom Sumner Program. The Tom Sumner Program is a live variety show with music, comedy and special guest interviews every Monday through Friday. The Tom Sumner Program. Old-fashioned radio for a new generation. Theme music is Fruit of the Louvre, provided by flick composer-producer Howard Eddy. Stay tuned, because it's on now. Old-fashioned radio for a new generation. The Tom Sumner Program. Here's your host. Have you lost your job and your health care coverage due to COVID-19? You're not alone, and Genesee Health Plan can help. I called, and they provided health care enrollment over the phone with Medicaid, HealthCare.gov, and Genesee Health Plan. They made sure I had access to doctor visits, my prescriptions, and more. Getting health care coverage can be confusing. You don't have to do it alone. Get help with GHP. Call 844-232-7740 or go to GeneseeHealthPlan.org. We're in this together, and together we'll get through it. Hi, I'm U.S. Senator Debbie Stabenow, and I'm listening to the Tom Sumner Show. Hey, good morning, everybody. Welcome to the show. I'm Tom Sumner, and we got a, a good one in store today. Uh, for a lot of people, uh, um, the subject of immigration is uh, controversial, to say the least. But uh, most people think that um, Congress controls immigration policy, but in a new book, it uh, shows how the president has taken an increasingly, and I don't mean the current president, but the presidency over the last century has um, actually over the course of two centuries, but um, has become really the immigration policy maker in chief. And uh, this is examined in a new book, The President and Immigration Law, from... Um, Yale Law Professor Christina Rodriguez, and she'll be joining me coming up in uh, just a few minutes, uh, about 10, 15 minutes or so. And uh, and then that's followed by, of course, this is Wednesday, so that means, of course, that it's Armchair Politics Day. That's a big effing deal. That's a, that's big, a big effing deal. deal. <laughs> a little snippet from uh, last night's uh, Democratic National uh, co- Convention, which has been uh, streaming and broadcast on uh, television. And it's a very different kind of convention. Bobby Clayton Walton, political operative, will be joining the roundtable today for Armchair Politics with our uh, roundtable regulars, Paul Rosicki on the left and uh, Henry Hatter on the right. And I'm sure that uh, some review of the convention will come up but in the meantime i uh i have some highlights from uh, we're actually two of four days into the convention they uh, officially nominated joe biden last night with a roll call vote that went better than expected for an online version um actually uh several of the uh, production qualities of this convention have been interesting different unique um whether or not it's effective well we'll take that up when we uh 
assemble the round table but in the meantime um, I have some highlights from day one and day two and uh, we'll hear those coming up in uh, just a moment but uh, by all means stay tuned I think this is going to be a very interesting conversation with Christina Rodriguez uh, coming up after the first break this hour and she'll be with us uh, for a little while to talk about her new book, The President and Immigration Law. I keep calling it her new book, but the truth is it was a, a team effort. She uh, co-wrote the book with Adam Cox, and uh, the two of them together shatter the myth that Congress controls immigration policy in that book, The President and Immigration Law. So stay tuned for that. And, of course, always tune in for Armchair Politics, our weekly roundtable. That's... Uh, coming up at uh, 10 o'clock or the second hour of our three-hour tour. It's a uh, two-hour weekly roundtable focusing on local, state, and national headlines and current events, plus some uh, interesting quotes and my favorite part, the uh, coveted X-Files. So that's coming up uh, a little later in the show, but right now we're going to take you to uh, the DNC 2020 convention starting with some highlights from day one and then we'll go to highlights from day two. So stay tuned. It's my honor to represent Milwaukee in Congress and to kick off the 2020 Democratic Convention. A virus attacks when the body is weak and when it cannot defend itself. Over these past few years, America's body politic has been weakened. The divisions have been growing deeper. The anti-Semitism, the anti-Latino, the anti-immigrant fervor, the racism in Charlottesville, where the KKK didn't even bother to wear their hoods. Today, we trail the world in defeating COVID. We have over 5 million cases. Americans learned a critical lesson how vulnerable we are when we are divided, and how many lives can be lost when our government is incompetent. Americans' eyes have been opened, and we have seen in this crisis the truth that government matters and leadership matters, and it determines whether we thrive and grow or whether we live or die. Hello, America. I'm Governor Gretchen Whitmer, or as Donald Trump calls me, that woman from Michigan. Democracy is a team sport especially now. Over the past few months, we've learned what's essential, rising to the challenge, not denying it. We've learned who is essential too. Not just the wealthiest among us, not a president who fights his fellow Americans. Our campaign ended several months ago, but our movement continues and is getting stronger every day. Many of the ideas we fought for that just a few years ago were considered radical, are now mainstream. But let us be clear, if Donald Trump is reelected, all the progress we have made will be in jeopardy. During this president's term, the unthinkable has become normal. He has tried to prevent people from voting, undermine the U.S. Postal Service, 
deployed the military and federal agents against peaceful protesters, threatened to delay the election, and suggested that he will not leave office if he loses. This is not normal, and we must never treat it like it is. His actions fanned this pandemic, resulting in over 170,000 deaths and a nation still unprepared to protect its people. Together, we must build a nation that is more equitable, more compassionate, and more inclusive. As George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, and a never-ending list of innocent people of color continue to be murdered, stating the simple fact that a Black life matters is still met with derision from the nation's highest office. Because whenever we look to this White House for some leadership or consolation or any semblance of steadiness, what we get instead is chaos, division, and a total and utter lack of empathy. Over the past four years, a lot of people have asked me, when others are going so low, does going high still really work? My answer, going high is the only thing that works. Because when we go low, when we use those same tactics of degrading and dehumanizing others, We just become part of the ugly noise that's drowning out everything else. So let me be as honest and clear as I possibly can. Donald Trump is the wrong president for our country. He has had more than enough time to prove that he can do the job, but he is clearly in over his head. He cannot meet this moment. He simply cannot be who we need him to be for us. It is what it is. Now, I understand that my message won't be heard by some people. We live in a nation that is deeply divided, and I am a black woman speaking at the Democratic Convention. But enough of you know me by now. You know that I tell you exactly what I'm feeling. You know I hate politics. But you also know that I care about this nation. You know how much I care about all of our children. If you think things cannot possibly get worse, trust me, they can and they will if we don't make a change in this election. If we have any hope of ending this chaos, we have got to vote for Joe Biden like our lives depend on. I fell in love with a man and two little boys standing in the wreckage of unthinkable loss. How do you make a broken family whole? The same way you make a nation whole. With love and understanding. Faced with a president of cowardice, Joe Biden is a man of proven courage. He will restore our moral compass by confronting our challenges not by hiding from them or undermining our elections to keep his job. His faith is unshakable. 
because it's not in politicians or political parties or even in himself. It's in the providence of God. His faith is in you, in us. Donald Trump inherited a growing economy and a more peaceful world. And like everything else he inherited, he bankrupted it. When this president goes overseas, it isn't a goodwill mission, it's a blooper reel. He breaks up with our allies and writes love letters to dictators. If you want a president who defines the job as spending hours a day watching TV and zapping people on social media, he's your man. 170,000 Americans have died from COVID, and Donald Trump says it is what it is. America, Donald Trump has quit on you. Just one thing never changes. His determination to deny responsibility and shift the blame. The buck never stops there. And out of this long national nightmare, America will finally awaken to a brighter future and a new day. In fidelity and gratitude to a mass people's movement working to establish 21st century social, economic, and human rights, in el espíritu del pueblo and out of a love for all people, I hereby second the nomination of Senator Bernard Sanders of Vermont for President of the United States of America. I take powerful people up on my elevator all the time. When they get off, they go to their important meetings. Me, I just head back to the lobby. But in the short time I spent with Joe Biden, I could tell he really saw me, that he actually cared, that my life meant something to him. That's why I nominate my friend Joe Biden as the next president of the United States. He'll make sure millions of people keep their coverage and no one can be denied for a pre-existing condition. That's a big effing deal. That's a big effing deal. Three years ago, my beloved city, Charlottesville, Virginia, was attacked by white supremacists and a young woman was killed. We were attacked again when Donald Trump praised those racists. That was the day Joe Biden decided to join this battle for the soul of America. When my daughter was murdered in Parkland, Joe Biden called to share in our family's grief. I quickly learned about his decency and his civility, but I also learned about his toughness. Florida cast 57 votes for Bernie Sanders and 192 votes for our next president, Joe Biden. Indiana casts two votes for my friend Bernie Sanders and 86 votes for the next president, Joe Biden. Delaware is proud to cast its 32 votes for our favorite son and our next president. Our friend, Delaware, Joe Biden. that if we entrust this nation to Joe, he will do for your family what he did for ours. Hello out there, everybody. It's me, Tigger. T-I-double-G-R. That spells Tigger. And don't forget to remember to listen to Tom Sumner program on account of because he's so bouncy. <laughs> 
I'm Julie Lopez with Crime Stoppers. Have you ever wondered what to do if you have information about a crime or the whereabouts of a felony fugitive and you want the police to know but you need to remain anonymous? Well, here's what you can do. You can go to p3tips.com or download the mobile app. You can go to Crime Stoppers of Flint and Genesee County's Facebook page and click on the Leave an Anonymous Tip tab, or you can call 1-800-422-JAIL. All methods are anonymous, and if your help leads to a felony arrest, you may be eligible for a cash reward. Remember, your voice matters. A social distancing tip. Putting distance between yourself and others is critical to slowing the spread of coronavirus. So here are ways to stay in contact without the physical contact part. Call, send a text, set up a video conference, post on social media, dedicate a song on the radio. If you have symptoms of fever, dry cough, and shortness of breath, call your health care provider before going to their office. For more info, visit coronavirus.gov. Let's all do our part, because we're all hashtag alone together. Brought to you by the America, your children have an amazing superpower. They can help save lives by not having playdates. That's right. By replacing get-togethers with virtual playdates and video chats, they can help slow the evil spread of germs. And if your superheroes do go outside, make sure they continue their superhero wing by staying six feet away from others to protect everyone in America land. Find out more at coronavirus.gov. A message from the CDC and the Ad Council. East Village Magazine is the monthly neighborhood magazine read all over Flint. With support from grants, donations, and advertisers, East Village Magazine's talented local writers give you an in-depth look at local news, issues, and people that make Flint, Flint. Copies of East Village Magazine are available at many of your favorite shops and restaurants around Flint or online at eastvillagemagazine.org. East Village Magazine, community-focused and community-supported. Your calls matter. Join me and Andrea weekdays from 9 to 10 a.m. Eastern to talk about whatever you want to talk about. The Tom Sumner Program has open phone lines Monday through Friday to hear from you. How's 2020 working out for you so far? How about those damn roads? Call in live at 810-339-8255. It's all about you. We'll be streaming live at TomSumnerProgram.com and simulcast on WFOV 92.1 FM in Flint. Foil hats are optional. You thought you had every Elvis record made, but wait, Elvis sings again, this time from heaven. That's right, Elvis from heaven. Yes, hear Elvis from Graceland in the Sky, soul-stirring versions of epic proportions. You'll hear Elvis crooning, Pearly Gate Rock, all dug up, lying in the chapel, and 11 others. This record also includes a special Elvis message. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. I'm Elvis Presley. Order before midnight tonight and receive this Elvis Presley commemorative casket keychain. Open it up. Yes, the king inside. A must for any Elvis fan. Order yours today. To order your Elvis from Heaven, send $9.95 in check or money order to Elvis from Heaven, P.O. Box 714, Cleo, Michigan, 44487. Or save COD charges and phone 555-5554. Use Master Charge or Visa, Canadian residents, add $3. Technical assistance for the Tom Sumner Program is provided by Swiftlet Technology. Engineering and IT services at swiftlet.technology. Tom Sumner. Program.com The Tom Sumner Program.com
This is Congressman Dan Kildee, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. Hey, welcome back, everybody. Uh, as promised earlier, we're uh, going to be talking about immigration. My uh, guest this hour is one of the co-authors of a book called The President and Immigration Law that uh, sort of shatters the myth that Congress controls immigration policy and uh, explains how the president became our immigration policy maker in chief over the course of uh, two centuries. Um, she is from Yale. Her name is, oh, by the way, she clerked for Sandra Day O'Connor, which I think is remarkable. Her name is Christine, uh, Christina Rodriguez, and she joins me by phone. Christina, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Um, as tempted as I am to ask you about your time with Sandra Day O'Connor, let's get right into the book. <laughs> it seems like presidential authority over immigration um, under under the guise of it's part of border security, therefore part of defense, therefore part of his role as commander-in-chief. How is that not kind of a no-brainer? Border security is and has always been an important feature of immigration law, at least since the creation of the Border Patrol in the 1920s, but even before then with efforts to try to control passenger ships and people moving in and out of the United States. The president, in the modern context, asserts a lot of authority over the border, in large part because he is the official who controls the bureaucracy that consists the, uh, comprises the Border Patrol. When you read Supreme Court judgments or general commentary about the, the, the fortification of the border, you do get this sense that it is about protecting American sovereignty. And the border is a very visceral image for people because it is the symbol of our capacity to assert our sovereignty in the world. But border patrol, our border control is a lot more complicated than just uh, the creation of barriers. It actually involves uh, the collection of intelligence. It involves managing the important and legitimate chewing and throwing of people and goods. Um, and that's something that's been vital to the domestic economy and to the United States place in the world uh, for, for decades, for centuries, in fact. And so it's not just about fortifying ourselves from outsiders. It's about figuring out how to manage our place in the world and enable both immigration and commerce to cross our borders. Um, Christina, one of your areas of expertise is uh, constitutional law. And is it that the, do you believe that the Constitution intended for Congress to oversee this function and that uh, the presidency has sort of assumed it over time the way it has done some other presidential powers? I think that if, if we start with the text of the Constitution itself, the only explicit mention of anything related to immigration is that Congress has the power to adopt a uniform rule of naturalization. So it's clear that from the very beginning, the idea was that Congress would decide who could become a citizen of the United States. But beyond that, it has never been crystal clear where the source to regulate immigration is. Um, and in fact, historically, there have been efforts by both presidents and Congress to try 
to regulate the movement of people. In the early part of the um, American Republic, it was really the president who exerted the most control through diplomacy, who uh, entered into trade agreements with other countries that facilitated the movement of people in addition to the movement of goods. And, And Congress before the Civil War really didn't regulate the movement of people much, uh, largely because it didn't want to suggest that it would try to regulate the slave trade. That actually kept Congress out of the business of immigration regulation. But once it began regulating in the late 19th century, adopting laws like the Chinese Exclusion Act that prohibited Chinese immigrants from entering the United States, Congress asserted more and more control over who could come into the country, how long they could stay, who would be deported, and how. But the actual process of admitting people and the actual process of deporting people requires an executive branch. It requires bureaucratic capacity. And it's from that that the president has acquired the power to really shape immigration policy. And and since the 1970s, um, the, the president has presided over the explosion of what we call in the book the deportation state, a massive machinery designed to screen people and figure out who can be removed. Um, And when you put that together with a phenomenon that's very much in the news, and and that is the rise of illegal immigration, you actually have uh, what we describe as an empowered presidency. You have millions of people inside the United States who lack immigration status, all of whom could in theory be deported, uh, but it's not possible to deport all of them. And so it's the executive branch that has to decide under what circumstances to bring enforcement actions and who to go after and when to exert or exercise forbearance. Um, And it's that dynamic that has really made it that the president sits at the center of both immigration policymaking, but also uh, the rhetoric and the politics surrounding immigration. Well, and President Trump, during his election bid in 2016 for president, made the immigration front and center. And and I, I, I want to talk about a, uh, a couple of aspects of that. Um, number one, I want to sort of underscore the conversation we've been having, that this presidential power over immigration wasn't something that Donald Trump assumed it's something that has grown over time. And, um, mm-hmm. and, and the other side of that is his uh, campaign promise of deporting a million people. And you just touched on it a moment ago that says that's logistically not very likely. Right, right. So it, it's definitely the case that the powers that Donald Trump is exercising have in some sense been long-standing or latent. Uh, and much of what he has done is actually a, a mirror of what some of his predecessors have done. But whereas the Obama administration sought to provide relief to certain kinds of immigrants, the, the dreamers, the people who are the beneficiaries of, of DACA, and target enforcement towards uh, other kinds of targets, people with criminal convictions and national security threats, the Trump administration's interest has been in maximalist enforcement. And so the the power he's exercising is power that a president in theory has always had, but he's choosing it, choosing to use it in a particular way. There are, the, the thing that the Trump administration is revealing for us in many contexts, not just immigration, is that there are actually a lot of explicit authorities that Congress has given the president 
mostly revolving around security, that past presidents have used sparingly or in narrow contexts, uh, but that Donald Trump has used to really dramatic effects. So his use of statutory authority to block the entrance of nationals from Muslim-majority countries early in his presidency, his COVID-19-related orders to block streams of legal immigration because they uh, those immigrants provide too much economic competition in the midst of uh, massive unemployment. Those are based on authorities that have been in the code since 1952, but that he's using with a very particular agenda in mind. And so he's able to combine his enforcement rhetoric with powers that already exist in the structure of the law and in the explicit law itself to advance his rhetorical agenda. Is one of the problems with immigration in the United States a lack of consistency where policy is concerned? And what role does uh, um, employment statistics or unemployment statistics play in that inconsistency? One of the, the challenges that is at the heart of the, the problem of illegal immigration in particular that has been central in American immigration politics since the 1970s is that the means by which the United States admits people are stuck in a kind of congressional amber. Congress sets the limits on who can enter and for what kinds of jobs. And there are a lot of bureaucratic hoops that employers have to jump through in order to recruit immigrant workers. And the consequence of that has been that employers uh, will work outside of the law to meet labor demand. This is much less of a problem today than it was in the 1990s or the early 2000s. Uh, economic and demographic circumstances have changed, and so there is not the same problem of large-scale illegal immigration anymore. But that problem part arises from the fact that the system uh, is not very good at adapting to changing circumstances, some of which are in the United States' control and some of which are not. Uh, what the president does have the power to do, though, is to use his enforcement authority to shape immigration law. And so much of his power comes not at the front end of the system in determining how many immigrants to admit, but at the back end in deciding who gets to be removed. And as the unauthorized population grows, as the grounds for removing people grow, which they've done since the, the late 1980s, that's kind of power uh, expands, and it's therefore through rhetoric and policies surrounding enforcement that the president exercises his power, and that's swallowed up a lot of the political space around immigration. It's focused both bureaucratically and politically around these questions of enforcement and using coercive authority to um, try to shape immigrant populations. How much of illegal immigration do you think happens because the, uh, the the naturalization process is so overwhelmed? I'm not sure that much of the population of unauthorized immigrants arises from that, uh, though that is a serious problem. Um, the harder it is to go through the process of naturalization, the more people you have in a kind of limbo. And sometimes those people who have legal status, you have to have legal status in order to go through the naturalization process, might fall out of that status or might otherwise be susceptible 
to deportation if they have, um, in some other way, violated the immigration laws. The the sources of illegal immigration are increasingly, however, um, people who enter the United States on a visa of some kind, either as a tourist or as a temporary worker or some other sort of temporary visa, uh, who want to stay past the time of their temporary work and don't have a path change their status from temporary to permanent. And an increasing share of the unauthorized population is coming from that channel, which reflects some need to reform the system, uh, both to better track people who come temporarily uh, to ensure that they do in fact leave, but also, in my view, more importantly, to provide uh, routes to people's more permanent residency if they are, are people who are working in jobs they want to continue or have uh, formed families or ties in the United States that makes them want to stay past the, the time of their temporary permit. Is staying beyond the, uh, beyond the time limit uh, for a visa common among uh, uh, college students? I don't know if it's common among college students. I think that the, um, I'm just imagining a scenario where some, you know, someone comes here to study in the United States, they have a student visa, and then they finish college and just decide to stay. Yeah, there, there are, I'm sure, people who fall into that category. I think that uh, there are many students who come from abroad who would like to stay to work in jobs. Um, at, at Yale Law School, we have lots of international students, many of whom would like to spend some time practicing law once they've graduated inside the United States. And for some people, the transition is easy, but for, for many, there's no obvious way to remain. There have been programs uh, that administrations have created. This is a good example of the president's power over, over immigration law to allow students to stay for an additional year or two in a kind of practical training program as an extension of their visas. This administration is, has really curtailed that program and is not interested in facilitating longer stays. And this is, in immigration reform debates, often something raised by people in Silicon Valley, other kinds of employers, um, people in the scientific community, that we should be finding ways to have graduate students in particular who come and invest and become part of uh, research operations to be able to stay. And so this is an important uh, question, both for an administration that might want to create temporary on-ramps, but also for a Congress interested in, in reshaping our immigration policy. Is, you know, for political reasons, immigration is very often talked about, especially illegal immigration, as a huge problem. Is it a huge problem, and do you think there's there's a, a fix or a series of things that would uh, reduce the uh, uh, problem nature of uh, immigration? My, my view is that it is a serious problem, uh, but not because it is an affront to the rule of law, though I, I do think large levels of illegal immigration can undermine people's confidence in the law and create a sense of um, people trying to take advantage of the system, and that's not healthy politically. But the, the main reason I think it's a problem is that 
we have in the United States a population of close to 11 million people, many of whom have been here for years, for, for decades, who are embedded in our communities, who have U.S. citizen children, U.S. citizen spouses, who are part of uh, cities and towns around the, the country and who inject economic dynamism, among other things, who have no legal status. And that is a problem that desperately needs to be resolved because those people live uh, lives uh, in limbo uh, and always under the threat of deportation. To our mind in the book, we talk about two ways of addressing this problem. The first is one that is perennially debated, and that is a legalization program that Congress needs to adopt a plan to enable people who are here without status to acquire status. And I hope very much that any immigration reform debate that happens in the next administration or at any subsequent um, Congress includes that. And it, immigration reform debates often do, and they often founder on disagreement about whether those people should, in fact, be given legal status. But the second component has to be giving the government tools to prevent illegal immigration from happening in the first place. And those tools can cover a, a broad range, and many of them necessarily involve the president and his administration. So uh, the, the clearest, most long-term kind of tool that's necessary is addressing the root causes of migration. Today, the most significant problem is migration from Central America. It's not people necessarily fleeing for economic opportunity, but instead people fleeing violence. So how does a government, how does a Congress, how does a president address the root causes of migration, address violence and other kinds of dislocation, sources of dislocation? But then there, there are other tools that um, a government could have, like the authority to periodically legalize people. So someone who's been present for five, ten years, has not committed any crimes, has consistently been working, perhaps that person should have a path to legalizing his or her status. There, there are European countries that have systems like that. So creating mechanisms to prevent future forms of illegal immigration from arising is also crucial. Otherwise, we'll find ourselves back in these familiar debates about amnesty, which can be very politically charged. Yeah, I, I want to talk about DACA, but first, um, because you said something about uh, the two different causes of, of migration, one being sort of economic opportunity, living the American dream and so on, and the other one being fleeing violence. And wouldn't the latter... Um, set up a case for refugee status and do we treat refugees differently than uh, than we do others who want to enter the country we do treat refugees differently uh, there are procedures enshrined in statute for people who are fleeing persecution to try to claim asylum or to claim protection from being returned to persecution the there are two challenges, at least two challenges associated with that. It seems simple on its face. Uh, the first is that the definition of persecution is actually quite narrow, and the grounds on which someone can claim that they are uh, in fear of persecution and therefore entitled to protection are narrow. You have to show that you would be persecuted on account of race, national origin, and, and a variety of other grounds. 
Uh, one of the things the Trump administration has done that, that shows the power that presidents have over immigration law is to narrow that already narrow definition and to exclude from that definition people who are fleeing domestic violence or gang violence. That's something that the Clinton and Bush and Obama administrations worked on uh, for years to try to expand through various different legal channels. And now the, the Trump administration, through the attorney general, has closed that down. Uh, so that's the first issue, is that the definition of refugee uh, is narrow and can be further narrowed by an administration that's not interested in asylum or protection, which, which I don't believe this particular administration is, is interested in. Um, and, and then the, the second issue is related, uh, which is how do you um, ensure that people are actually able to make the claims that they believe they have? And how do you create processes both at the border and in the interior uh, that enable those claims to, to succeed? And one of the developments that's happened just in the last couple of months is that the Supreme Court has issued a decision that dramatically narrows the ability of people who have crossed the border uh, unlawfully without inspection uh, or even who are present at the border um, to get their claims beyond a frontline immigration official to a court. And so there are a lot of procedural questions that um, Congress can address, uh, but that the, the Supreme Court has made increasingly challenging for people who are seeking protection. I, I'm not sure if I have this right, but um, I think it's the 14th Amendment that uh, guarantees children born in the United States are U.S. citizens, um, even if they come from people who are not, were not born in the United States, um, and, and are not necessarily United States citizens legally or otherwise. Um, do I have that right, or is yes, it much that's more? Right. Is it why? Why is that concept so complicated when it comes to DACA, for example? So the people who are beneficiaries of DACA were not born in the United States. They are. Uh people who were brought to the United States as children. To be eligible for DACA, you have to have come to the United States uh, before the age of 16. And so it recognizes that there are people who have essentially grown up in the United States. Many people who receive DACA didn't even know until they tried to apply for college or student loans or for a job after graduating from high school that they didn't have legal status. So they're effectively functionally Americans and yet they don't have legal status, um, much less citizenship status. The question of birthright citizenship is one that occasionally flares up, but the 14th Amendment is actually very straightforward. It says anyone born in the United States and subject to the jurisdiction thereof is a citizen of the United States. So where your parents came from is immaterial. What your parents' legal status was was immaterial unless uh, you are born to diplomats uh, or you are born to someone who's part of an invading army. That 
exception subject to the jurisdiction thereof was meant to encompass <laughs> people who fall into those limited categories. That, that seems but it has reasonable. But nothing to do with immigration status. Christ- yeah. Christina, <laughs> I have to take a break here. Can you stick around for a few minutes so we can talk a little more? Absolutely. All right. I'd be happy to. My uh, guest is Christina Rodriguez from Yale. We're talking about uh, the, the new book she co-authored, The President and Immigration Law. We'll be right back. Hi, this is Joe Biden from the Blue Lions, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. Hi, this is Tom from the Tom Sumner Program. If you like talk radio that makes you think without telling you what to think, check out our whole show weekdays from 9 a.m. to noon Eastern at TomSumnerProgram.com. Selected segments are also available on this and other radio stations, but you can hear us anytime. Daily editions of the Tom Sumner Program repeat online all day and night on the show's website. Past shows can be found in the website archives. My long-format interviews with New York Times best-selling author photographers and writers from National Geographic, as well as artists, musicians, candidates, and elected officials are made possible by listeners like you. Support the Tom Sumner Program and Civilized Talk Radio. Visit our website at TomSumnerProgram.com and become a member. You can make a one-time gift or become a sustaining patron by taking the link to the Tom Sumner Program Patreon page. Thanks for listening and thanks for your support. discoveries. They happen when we least expect them in places we thought we knew. And discoveries have a way of teaching us a little more about ourselves along the way. Welcome to Flint and Genesee County, where up north meets down south. Home to Michigan's largest county park system and a vibrant culture. A place filled with discoveries we've yet to make throughout acres of beautiful lakes, wetlands, and woods, and in the diverse city beyond. Where the uplifting melodies of gospel choirs fill the air. Where the work of renowned artists color the galleries and museums. Where the fresh fruits and vegetables at the downtown farmer's market awaken our senses. And where the cultural center and planetarium broaden our view of the world. Let's spend a few days enjoying the wonders of Flint and Genesee County. Where the joy of discovery is pure Michigan. Your trip begins at Michigan.org. Thank you, and thank you all for tuning in. You know, we know that tough times don't last, but tough people do. We've been through a lot here in Michigan. We've been through crisis before, where the country needed their countrymen and countrywomen to pitch in collectively to get through a crisis and rise to the occasion. Michigan once was the arsenal of democracy to win World War II. We need that same spirit now. We're working around the clock with doctors and hospitals and first responders to stop the spread and to save lives. But we need your help too. The state has launched a new volunteer website at www.michigan.gov forward slash fight COVID-19 where trained medical professionals can register to serve their fellow Michiganders by assisting hospitals in fighting COVID-19. State residents can also use the site to find out how they can help in their local communities by giving blood or donating resources or needed medical supplies. Whether you're a medical professional looking to volunteer or you're someone who can give blood or donate to your local food bank, everyone can help out. To get through this, we must all do our part. Stay home, stay safe, 
and save lives. Technical assistance for the Tom Sumner Program is provided by Swiftlet Technology, engineering and IT services at swiftlet.technology. I know of a place where you never get harmed, a magical place with magical charms, indoors, 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 take it away. Hey, this is First Ward City Councilman Eric Mays, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. Hey, welcome back, everybody, as we continue my conversation with uh, uh, Christina Rodriguez from Yale, talking about uh, the new book that she co-authored with uh, Adam Cox from NYU, I think. Um, The President and Immigration Law is the name of the book, and Christina joins me by phone. Christina, welcome back. Thank you. Thanks, thanks for sticking around. Just before the break, we were talking a little bit about the impact of uh, uh, f- the 14th Amendment on all of this, which uh, was actually originally created to cover uh, the granting of citizenship to uh, freed slaves. Who, That's right. Who were born in this country, but of parents who didn't have citizenship or came from other countries and um and and allowed them to become citizens but it applies to anybody born in this country except for the uh uh two or three exceptions that you cited right before the break um that seems to be in the wake of what's being called anchor babies somewhat controversial Mm-hmm. I think that uh, there is a, a, a trope out there, a, a, a political line of attack against birthright citizenship out there that emphasizes that people will try to take advantage of the fact that our citizenship rule is so generous and come to the United States to have their children, uh, and that through that, someone who wouldn't otherwise have immigration status can become a citizen. That um, So though it may well be the case, and you can certainly find anecdotes to this effect that people come for, for birth tourism in order to have children who are citizens of the United States, it's not exactly uh, an easy route to immigration status for the, the parent because a, a child cannot sponsor his or her parent for citizenship until the child turns 21. So it would require a lot of patience and a lot of time to actually acquire immigration status that way. But for me, that debate is a sideshow because what really matters about the 14th Amendment is that it ensures that people who are born here and therefore the vast majority of people who are born here who are ultimately going to remain here uh, cannot become legal outcasts that they have access to citizenship and therefore uh, to equal status in our political community. I like to call the 14th Amendment the constitutional reset button, that whatever our immigration woes might be, whatever the problem with unauthorized status might be, uh, when someone's born in the United States, they are no longer tied to the identity of their parents. They are themselves full citizens in their own right. And it's an important 
component of uh, equal citizenship in this country, which has always been a country of immigration. And so the importance of that to me swamps whatever potential gaming of the system might occur, which I think is still a, a very small component of the people who become citizens in every, any given year. Oh, gaming's going to exist with with any system or with any rules or regulations, isn't it? Yes, it will. Uh, so other countries that have had birthright citizenship rules historically, uh, like the UK or Ireland, we inherited the the practice from uh, the UK, have narrowed their laws to make it clear that someone born within their jurisdiction has to have at least one parent who is also a citizen and possibly a permanent resident. So there are legal tools that countries have tried to use to reduce the possibility of gaming as they uh, perceive it. In the United States, because our citizenship rule is constitutional, uh, Congress doesn't have the same ability as a parliament uh, in another common law jurisdiction to narrow the, the birthright uh, the, the reach of birthright citizenship, but even still, uh, whatever gaming is occurring, I think is is quite minor. It's something that's easily blown up into a scandal, but has very limited impact on uh, the society as a whole, on the pool of people who are in fact uh, born in the United States and become citizens of the United States. The vast majority of them are connected in a meaningful way to the country, and therefore ought to have citizenship. And if a few people uh, end up with citizenship um, who don't actually have that connection, I think that's fine. The same critique is sometimes made uh, of giving citizenship to, say, uh, non-citizens who come to the United States for school and they happen to have a child while here and then they intend to go back to wherever they came from. That child is forever a citizen of the United States, but with no real connection to it. That, That, to me, doesn't present a real problem to our identity or security as a nation. And so it's not something that should be driving our discussion of, of citizenship at all. Why is it important for, for people to understand who has power over immigration and how that power evolved? Or in other words, how, how did you and uh, Adam Cox decide to write this book, and who do you imagine it's for? And I know that you want everyone to read it, but, but, did, <laughs> but, but is there a target? Is there someone who can benefit most from this information? I think that there are a number of audiences who would benefit from understanding this history. Uh, the first is a general audience interested in, the, in immigration. And to help people understand that uh, what the Trump administration has done or what the Obama administration has done is not just the product of our polarized politics. It's not just uh, exerting the will of the president because of an inability to get legislation through Congress. It's actually part of a long-standing distribution of power that reaches deep into our history. And so on some level, it, it has a constitutional legitimacy that we should accept, but then try to understand. Uh, and then when you, when you understand that, then you realize that a lot of the battles that we're having are actually political battles about what we think immigration law and policy should consist of, what we think the rhetoric surrounding immigration uh, should sound like and, and read like. And, and so instead of having debates about a president being out of control, 
we should be having debates about what vision of immigration we want uh, our president to reflect and embody. Uh, and, and then the second thing that we learn by understanding the sources of the president's power is that it's rooted in a system that since the early 20th century, but accelerating in the late 20th and, and early 21st in an logic of enforcement, that we need a big enforcement apparatus in order to protect ourselves, in order to control uh, immigrants who are here and remove those who we don't think should be here, and that that apparatus has grown in size dramatically. It dwarfs all other federal law enforcement operations and is something that Congress increasingly funds um, gives money to, to to keep it going. And it's that that empowers the president and actually triggers uh, coercive powers of the presidency, not necessarily ameliorative powers of the presidency. But if we want to address that, if we want to address the way that presidents um, current and, and past have used coercive power, we have to address the underlying structure of the law, not try to figure out ways to clip the, the president's power per se, or to argue that he's acting out of bounds, but instead think about the underlying structures of the, of the law that are creating this power and try to reform those. And so in the, in the book, we offer some ideas to begin the reform conversation that are directed at immigration policy people, lawmakers who are interested in uh, in in harnessing the the benefits of presidential control and tamping down the negative sides of presidential control, which are these uses of coercive authority. And so that's another audience of people um, who I, we think could benefit from understanding the sources of the president's power over immigration law. Well, Christina, we have to put an end there, but I always give guests an opportunity to let listeners know where they can find out more about you, about the book, about your other work, your other writings, and so on. Do you have a website? I have my Yale Law School website, and we actually do have a website for the book under construction that we hope will be up in time for its publication on September 1st, where we have some of our other writings and uh, details about events where we'll be discussing the book in September and October and, and through the fall. So that will eventually be found at uh, President and Immigration Law. Well, Christina, thank you so much for spending this time with me this morning. I really appreciate it. I really appreciate it. I enjoyed the conversation immensely. Thank you, Tom. Take care. That was Christina Rodriguez from uh, Yale Law School. Stay tuned. Armchair Politics is coming up in uh, just a few minutes. Come on, baby, baby. Tell me what.
show down here. It's a Tom Sumner program, don't you know? Go on. Go on, get out of here. <laughs> 